Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Greek, Latin, Spanish, Old English, Old Norse, Gothic, Finnish. Dude's, dude's a linguistic genius. And a gentleman and a scholar. A gentleman and a scholar. And I just disgraced him by calling him a dude. Like that's that's my <laughs> that's my linguistics. I call Tolkien a dude. That's that's how smart I am. Welcome back, everybody. This welcome, is Tudor welcome. Ramble. This is Richard. I am Austin. Richard, why don't you say your name? You just said it. It's Richard. That is Richard. <laughs> I am Austin. I know. I, I felt bad because I introduced you for you. So usually when you, you leave... You know what? I'll, I'll, I won't take offense. Okay, uh, good, good, good. You can order for me at restaurants sometimes. I, I'm, just uh, so, I'm not going to get offended. I know. But I'm just so excited. I've got my mug right here. I don't even follow baseball. It's the only mug I could find. But I've got my mug of water. That's how you know this is about to be a video. Also, I, I dressed up and you <sighs> still have your hoodie on. It's comfortable. I want to be comfortable I, when I'm talking about... The legend himself, J.R.R. Tolkien. I just felt Tolkien deserved a little bit of class. That's he, that is my thought. He would want me to be comfortable in my little shire, and he'd want me to have a glass of water and second breakfast. Well, we'll actually get into that. What what would Tolkien have wanted? <laughs> well, you will, so this is what this video is about. We did one, I think it was in our uh, like 13th episode or something, where we did a deep dive on Brandon Sanderson yeah. as an author. So we have this series we do. We pick out authors and hopefully directors eventually where we take the author, in this case, J.R.R. Tolkien, and we do a deep dive, not just on his famous stuff, obviously The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but we're going to give some information and back and forth of things we each researched on our own, and we're going to surprise each other with the things we found. Yeah, so we try and keep our research mostly separate. And before before we actually get around to filming... We talk about kind of subjects so we don't step on each other's toes. Yeah. But overall, I don't know the details of what he's researched. Uh, he doesn't know the details of mine. Yes. And for the views out there, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that we're excited to get to because Tolkien, uh, we've been huge admirers of Tolkien. Oh, yeah. Because, of, you know, everyone knows Lord of the Rings, but the stuff we found and we're going to go through his life influences legacy just a bunch and this is a deep dive on the master himself J.R.R. tolkien and by the way right before we get into it i will mention take a look up top all the books i i went on a spending spree a little bit and because just researching his life and reading the silmarillion i just wanted more i have not gotten to all of those books but i bought them because i know i will and also it looked good in a video like this yeah so i i'm a fan of aesthetics and i'm a little bit OCD. I can't just like buy one book of a series. Clearly. I have to just buy all of it or else it bothers me. So And you we displayed all of them up here and you didn't have enough, so the rest are in front of us here. We got plenty of books. All Tolkien works. Yep. So wanna get into this. Let's get this into is, it. This is this is gonna be a deep video, it's a deep dive. J.R. Tolkien. Let's go. So first thing to start off with, we're gonna do this as chronologically as we can is his childhood to up to his marriage. J.R.R. Tolkien, 
I think you had found for, through your research as well, was actually born in South Africa, correct? Yeah, he was born in South Africa, but uh, fairly early on, his family moved back to uh, England. I think it was, they moved back to Birmingham, I believe. Yes, and I believe his father stayed in South Africa behind for work. And his father died there without, he was planned on coming back to England with Tolkien and his brother as well. Him and his brother and his mom took them back to England, which is where his mom and dad are from. But they went to South Africa for work. And then when they became, when he was a toddler, she wanted to go back to England for his studies. And while that happened, his father died in South Africa, I believe. Is that correct? I believe it was when he was three or four. Three or four. Okay. And then his mother died uh, about 12 years old. Yes. And I'm sure you found through that after his mother died, there was a priest, correct? Father, let's see his name here. It was Catholic priest Father Francis Morgan stepped in as Jared Tolkien's uh, guardian at mm-hmm. the age of 12. And this, this is a quote from Tolkien himself, and this is in Tolkien's later years. years. He said, quote, I first learned charity and forgiveness from him, talking about his guardian, Francis Father Morgan. And something about his mother before she died, she became a devout Catholic. She converted to Catholicism. And at the time, this estranged the Tolkien family from both the mother's and deceased father's side. I didn't, I didn't find that. I didn't actually see that. Yeah, How that, did it estrange them? It, that, what I found was it said it estranged, so I'm assuming they were of a different faith and didn't agree with Catholicism. It was something ah. revolving around they didn't agree with Roman Catholicism. And I didn't get further into that. It mm-hmm. just said they were estranged for those reasons. Mm. So there, there was little information about his mother. I was doing a, lo- yes. uh, doing a lot of looking and quite, uh, quite scant on the details. Yeah, it, it says the effect of that for J.R.R. Tolkien was he experienced a lot of loneliness, isolation, and poverty in his younger years following this time. And uh, it, but it doesn't did, surprise it doesn't surprise me learning a little bit about that that his first writing his first like more literary passions was poetry. Yeah, it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. And when they moved back to this English area, there's it's a very green, bright, and vibrant place. A lot of inspirations for later the Shire, mm-hmm. and there's also close to that area a very industrial place, which you could see the influences beginning throughout his childhood here. Yeah. And there's one famous story I should mention. Sorry, I'm going to walk back for a second here. Mm-hmm. When he was in South Africa at, as a toddler. So he had one memory which came up, and it's, it's a maybe memory. You know, you can't really remember things when you're three, sure. four. But there's one possible tale. Tolkien says he was bit by a spider and had to have the venom sucked out of him by a nurse. Which, this is important because people assume then, then, oh, that's why they have giant spiders in Lord of the Rings. Because he's, that happened as a kid, so now that's mm-hmm. in Middle Earth. So there's all these anecdotes you can look at through his childhood that inspired him later on. So he was 12 years old when the new guardian father, Francis Morgan, uh, and he, he respected him a lot. And then this came to the time where he was in school and met his wife, Edith. This, this I actually did do a little research on. Yes. It, it was a very cute, a very cute story. Tell us, please. So he actually met his uh, wife, Edith, at about uh, 16 years old. and She was 16 or he was 16? He was 16. But yeah, he fell in love with her. And uh, the, his, the father, uh, the 
the priest, actually forbid them from seeing each other until uh, you are 21. And so Tolkien agreed to that. But over time, when he became 21, she moved off um, out of town, and Tolkien found out that she was actually about to be married to another man. And I'm he, so angry right now. I want to tell the story so bad. Go ahead, keep going. <laughs> this is an awesome story. And he actually went across England, and uh, you know, he uh, got her back. He, you know, he won. He won her back, and they actually got married. Oh uh, yeah, that it's such a cute story, yeah. and the way he won her back is really cute as well. Mm-hmm. Where Tolkien wrote her a letter, and doing you know Tolkien's yeah. the author of all authors. He wrote a letter. That literally changed her mind. Like, she wasn't even going to give a thought. It literally made her change her thought and go meet with him. So they mm. went on a walk. And after that walk finished, she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm Tolkien's girl now. <laughs> it's it completely changed her mind. Not only that, she also converted to Catholicism. So her whole life changed. Man, he just converted because, his what? He converted oh, C.S. Lewis, not to Catholicism, but to Christianity. Christianity which we'll get into as yeah. well. But the, the man has a way with words, obviously. So Clearly. Yeah. Uh, so even he even wooed his wife through poetry and through words and letters. It's just so poetic. It's, it's beautiful. Well, uh, the little side thing is it is fairly common knowledge, but maybe some people or casual fans don't know. Yeah. Uh, one of the more prevalent stories in... Um, Middle Earth is the story of Baron and Luthien, yes. which is a one of the better love stories in Lord of the Rings uh, between an elf and a human, which only happens three times in the entire history of Middle Earth. And it is commonly referred to that Tolkien refer, uh, kind of saw that story as him and his wife. Mm-hmm. With, He's uh, Baron and she's Luthien. Yeah, and how much because there were many obstacles in their way that he had to actually go across England, that there were so many obstacles to, in their love story. And also he kind of considered, you know, Luthien is the most gorgeous woman that ever existed in all of Middle-earth. Yeah, his wife. Of course, that's going to be his, his wife. wife. Yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah, exactly. Uh, so a little bit of wish fulfillment, a little, yeah. little bit of a story to his uh, wife. And on their tombstones, it actually has their names and also Baron and Luthien. Yeah, that is... That is so cute. And he even said at the time of, he looked back at how much he admired his wife. That mm-hmm. where he where Tolkien was at in his life, he said this. He expressed admiration because she was interested in him, a man with no job, little money, and no prospects except the likelihood of dying in the Great War. Because this, time frame wise, he was born in the late 1800s. So they're getting together right around when World War One is going full blown. It's like 1914, 15, around that time. So... Their love story, like Baron and Luthien, is actually absolutely beautiful. And they had how many children? Was it four? They had four. Four children. And a cute little thing that they, they did, uh, he, Tolkien did for his children is for from 1920 to 1942, he illustrated Christmas letters to his kids mm-hmm. every single Christmas. And it later became a, a published story where you can look back at the letters he made for his kids. So it's well, very cute. A lot of his stories are... Um, mostly stories that he would tell his family mm. and later published, repurposed. But his world affected, like the earliest that he can remember creating stories was with his brother when he was seven. Mm. That's okay. kind of the er- that that's as early as, that's kind of when Middle Earth started. Got it. So, um, but yeah, if want to go into it, he also had a brother, Hillary, 
Yes. Uh, that was. He also went into the Great War and um, injured. So he had uh, a lot of shrapnel, shrapnel damage. But after the war, he went, had a farm. And him and his wife lived on a farm. It, there's not too much information about him, but fairly wholesome. Awesome. Li- lived a good life. Died. One of the, one of the uh, cute stories that I heard about is once uh, Tolkien actually wrote The Hobbit, uh, his brother got a new dog. And he called the dog, um, when the dog was being good, he called the dog Bilbo. And when the dog was being bad, he called it Baggins. That's that's way too cool. <laughs> and so that's just like a, now, some people would say like, oh, he na- Tolkien named Bilbo after his brother's dog. No, it's yeah. the other way around. His yeah. brother named it after the character. But Got it. I just thought it was cute. Anything else you want to touch up on Tolkien's more childhood to marriage or... Let me see here. Um, no, the rest I have is more on his kids. Okay. So let's get into then Tolkien in his schooling years and into the Great War, into World War One. Sure. So he went to school at King Edward School in Birmingham, where he studied linguistics. And it's well known that he was a fantastic student. Great student. He, mans- he mastered ancient and modern language, Greek, Latin, Spanish, Old English, Old Norse, Gothic, Finnish. Dude's... He was a linguistic genius. And a gentleman and a scholar. A gentleman and a scholar. And I just disgraced him by calling him a dude. Like that's that's my <laughs> that's my linguistics. I call Tolkien a dude. That's that's how smart I am. So this dude knows seven languages that are not easy. He's studying ancient languages, modern, and so it's it's phenomenal. And in 1910, aroundish the age of in his late teens or so, he created a secret society in his school and it was called tcbs called t club and barovian society and i think this is so cool because it shows you his his passion for for what he was doing in this little society uh him and his friends in in school regularly met and they talked about they wrote poetry and looked at each other's stuff it was almost like a writing group but it was also a place where they just hung out and had a good time do you know anything about this? I actually or, don't. It, it's just a it's a really cool thing where they did, and today there's a lot of writing groups and whatnot, but this was yeah. his form of just hanging with friends, looking over poetry, and there were four of them that were huge. It was Tolkien himself and three others that were known as the Big Four. So his other friends were Gregory Smith, Christopher Wiseman, and Robert Gilson. And Other than Robert Gilson, I know the other two. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And the, so these, these three people are very important in Tolkien's story and who the type of person he became to be because this whole club with TCBS and schooling was cut short in 1916 because uh, and it, it faded in 1916 because all four of it, him and his three best friends, his best buddies were all sent into world war one and the battle they were all in was called, I'm, I'm so sorry, history bus, but battle of Somme, the battle of the Somme, the battle of the Somme, which is known as one of the deadliest battles in human history. Mm-hmm over a million casualties and it lasted over four months tolkien was a part of that and <clears throat> sorry one of the only reasons tolkien survived is that he grew sick in the trenches and was sent off the battlefield but he was still on the on a battlefield for quite some time and i mentioned the big four his his best buddies there because you have gregory uh, of, of the four tolkien and one other survived two of his best friends died um the one that survived was christopher wiseman 
Yeah. And that's who Tolkien named his son after, Christopher Tolkien, his his eldest son. I believe it's his oldest son. Uh, no, Christopher is the youngest son. Youngest, so sorry. But named named Christopher his son after Christopher, his best buddy. Now, one of these people, uh, Gregory Smith, apologies as I find this on my notes. Yes, Gregory Smith. Gregory Smith was uh, one of his best friends that died in the war. Mm-hmm. And what's important here is Tolkien... After the war, in 1918, he published his dead friend's poetry under and sent a forward in his name, which is very touching. And uh, he a lot of what he went through in the Battle of Psalm, did I say that correctly? The Battle of Psalm, yep. uh, is what inspired the Dead Marshes and was his feeling of being able to write those battle scenes in Lord of the Rings. That's a lot of that comes from his real world experience in World War One. Well, also, there. There has been some speculation. Um, I don't know how true it is. Something with the Lord of the Rings battle sequences is great battles happen in these stories, but they're never gone into too much detail. Like the the results are, but it's more of an eagle-eyed view of these things. And I'm I wonder is because he went through such a bloody battle in bloody war that he didn't go into too many of the details like the kind of bloody details in his literature they kind of kept it surface level mm. now that's just kind of my own thinking on top of it but right. it kind of makes sense and why you wouldn't want to describe those things in detail now that could also just be the era of the time it was just uncouth to write in such gory detail so maybe it wasn't the style maybe it wasn't classy to do so okay I, that just a thought of mine I, I don't know what you think what I, you would think about it i would think maybe it's also the audience that's reading it he doesn't want to he's also considering the audience yeah and the age range he's going for so he's probably keeping in mind mm-hmm. so I, I i could definitely see that because he saw war he saw the worst of it mm-hmm. and uh, in fact it's it's the the level of tragedy to it is that he was writing to one of his best friends while in the uh, while at the Battle of Somme. Was writing to one of his best friends that their best friend had died, and that friend he wrote to then died yeah. very shortly after by shrapnel. So just the absolute tragedy of that the Battle of Somme was horrific. Uh, so uh, do you have have anything else about the battle? I, I well, kinda, his brother I, I mentioned again. His brother also, mm-hmm. um, I believe, was also in the battle. He got um, shrap. He got injured by shrapnel and was. Okay. Um, taken out so that's how he survived as well so basically if you got injured you're lucky because yeah. you, you were taken out or got sick significantly were... injured yeah right so that yes that that was encompasses his schooling and him in war and now if you'd like to move on to his early works his early works and his teaching because Tolkien after the war became yeah. a teacher and what do you have on that well uh, we'll we'll cover a lot of uh, a couple of the stuff later but mm-hmm. An overview. His earlier works were mostly poetry and also translations. Right. Uh, he, of course, you know, he studied Latin, all these things. So he would um, Latin, Greek, uh, old, old English, all that. So he would, of course, he did a translation of Beowulf. Yes. Uh, one of his first was a translation of um, the Green uh, the Green Knight. It's an Arthurian legend. I do not have it here. Um, during his schooling, he, uh, did this, uh, uh, I'm going to get it 
pronunciation wrong. Uh, the story of Culavero, Culavero, uh, and um, the darker story, which speaks more to his mindset at the time. And were these published in the books much later? But he wrote these a long time ago. Yeah these these books here were published about 2016, I think. Okay. And but, but they were published in the journals, and right, right. I believe this one was in the Welsh journal. Okay. Um, when he was still, when he was at completing not his undergrad. No, I think okay. it was completion of his undergrad. He released this, so. Quite a few of his earlier works were mostly these kind of translations. Mm. And um, fun yeah. fact on that, when World War II came around, the uh, Britain came to him and wanted him to become a code breaker mm-hmm. because he's so good at translation and fi- figuring out languages. Sure. But it turned out they didn't need him for some reason. But he was, mm. he was in that process for a little bit. Uh, but he Interesting. Had, as we know, so some of his early works... Uh, he has a lot more than that too. That's just impossible to mention he, all of them. Yeah, no, I had to leave out. There, there's <laughs> yeah. plenty. There's so many essays. There's many. Um, he gave uh, when he was actually a teacher. He gave talks that were actually transcribed later and uh, actually published in written form. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them when he was when he was teaching at Oxford, he gave a speech to some group. Uh, I can't really remember the specific group. But it, that speech was later published as um, on fairy tales, and so that that's actually a very important book that we'll get into on inspiration later. But okay. yeah, like even his talks were published later. So Got so it. much. Got it. And, and yeah, to give some background, on that he was first a professor at the University of Leeds in mm-hmm. looks like nineteen nineteen twenties to twenty five, and then was a teacher at Oxford, right? Yeah, and. At their, so what did he teach exactly? Anglo-Saxon, it says he taught. Is yeah. that correct? So he taught Anglo-Saxon. And so when we'll, we'll be moving in then. So at, at his time as o- at Oxford, this is when he wrote The Hobbit. The yep. book The Hobbit. Uh, oh, of course. What else am I talking about? <laughs> the, the famous The Hobbit, which now has sold over 100 million copies. And incredible. And do you, do you know the story behind his, where he wrote the very first line? I don't think I know that one. I know a couple stories in the book of inspirations from the book, but not the first line. Okay, so he wrote in a hole in the ground, there lived the hobbits, when he was grading papers. <laughs> there was a blank page, and I guess he was like, why is there a blank page? Oh, might as well write on it. And so he wrote that line to start the hobbit as he was doing the mundane task of fouling people out of his class. So yeah. that's where it began, <laughs> which is which is pretty incredible. Yeah, well... The uh, thing is, he may have wrote The Hobbit. That was his first written book for, um, first published book mm-hmm. uh, for Lord of the Rings. However, these stories, he actually did write a lot of the stories that take place and are published in the Silmarillion before he ever wrote The Hobbit. Mm. He created the world before The Hobbit. Middle-earth was already being planned. Yeah, and mainly there was a loose connection between things. Like, he kind of had an idea of, he wrote these stories, and they just seemed to kind of connect together. But he mostly created the language first, and then after the language, kind of came up with stories and characters and names. And so first comes the language, then comes the names, and he says, well... You know, with these great names, there has to come a story behind have, these people. I actually don't know this. Do you know how he came up with names? Did he do that? Yes. Okay. Um, 
So some of the inspiration, um, all the way. So many notes. Um, so like for the world, the elves, Mm -hmm. there was from the main stuff for the names is the epic uh, poem Beowulf, uh, Sigawala land, and then lastly the deity, uh, the Nodens, which that actually. It's a more it's the Celtic healing god, and that is so he used a lot of mythology. Yeah, but that's the direct inspiration of Feanor. So there's a story of uh, this Celtic healing god who creates. um, He crafts his name is translated to Silver Hands, which in the Elvish language is uh, Celebrimbor. Who who found who uh, forged the rings of power? Mm. There's a lot of parallels there, and so yeah, so a lot okay. of it comes from these old myths. Yeah, the Hobbit parts. didn't come out of nowhere. He's been no, it, it, this has been in his mind and writings and through for a long time. But the Hobbit eventually was published in 1937. Yeah, and in 1937, the first print run it printed out 1,500 copies in September of 1937. And they were sold out by December, uh, which for the time, very good. And that's because there, was a, there were so many enthusiastic reviews of the mm-hmm. book. So it went, it went through rather quickly. And, the, uh, and today, as we know, over 100 million sold, over 50 languages translated. Uh, and one thing to note is this book as well was really written for his kids. It's, oh, yeah. it, that's a large part of it because it famously has no speaking roles from female characters. There's zero in The Hobbit. Only yeah. three females are mentioned in the entire book. Yeah. Which, what do you think about that? Well, what is that? Is that significant? Or is that just this kind of story he wrote? Yeah, I, I don't think it's too significant. I mean, it just, it, it was mostly written for his boys. I, I don't think his daughter was, you know, old enough for mm. uh, for the stories yet. Or at least she was, she was pretty young. And a lot of this was Christopher. So he, Christopher was the most enthusiastic about the, uh, about the Hobbit. Oh, we'll, we'll have lots to say on Christopher. We'll have yeah. a lot to say, but the, the one thing I'll actually get there is, um, Tolkien actually wrote in one of his letters, uh, that to one of his editors where Christopher, uh, actually said here, he, his little boy, Christopher, interrupted him and said, uh, last time you said Bilbo's front door was blue, and you said Thorin had a golden tassel on his hood, but you've just said that Bilbo's front door was green and that Thorin's hood was silver. And Tolkien said, at which point, um, he, he muttered, damn the boy, and <laughs> strode across the room to his desk to make a note. <laughs> so his 10-year-old or however-year-old child yeah. was... Editing for his dad, pretty much. Yeah, he was his first editor for The <laughs> Hobbit. That is too cool. Yeah, so Christopher had, even at his young age, had an eye for detail and helped a oh, lot of those wow. details for The Hobbit to kind of make it coherent. Very nice. And we'll also get into C.S. Lewis, but I have to say mm-hmm. his review of The Hobbit, which you'll see why. They're, they're very good friends. But this is this was his review, and I'm not going to say it in its entirety because it's a long review. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis said about The Hobbit, To define the world of the Hobbit is, of course, impossible, because it is new. 
You cannot anticipate it before you go there as you cannot forget it once you have gone. And then some ellipses here, and this is what he says at the end of the review. He says, For it must be understood that this is a children's book only in the sense that the first of many readings can be undertaken in the nursery. Alice, as in Alice in the Wonderland, is read gravely by children and with laughter by grown-ups. The Hobbit, on the other hand, will be funnier to its youngest readers, and only years later, at a 10th or a 20th reading, will they begin to realize what deft scholarship and profound reflection have gone on or have gone to make everything in it so ripe, so friendly, and in its own way so true. Prediction is dangerous, but The Hobbit may well prove to be a classic. Well, definitely was right about that. <laughs> Damn right he was. And he wrote this, this was when it came out. So yeah. he had no understanding of, of what would happen. I, I just that. reread the book last week as well. So, awesome. it, yeah, it holds up. It's, it's amazing. Great. Now, that's The Hobbit. We won't go. I mean, everyone knows The Hobbit. So yeah. I think it's important. I know you have a lot to say about this. Mm-hmm. Is the, it, who Tolkien was influenced by? How did he sure. come to write these great works in The Hobbit? Where, where did that inspiration come from? Well, as mentioning before, it mostly comes from a, a love of languages. And he, mm-hmm. he loved uh, poetry. He, loved, he always wanted to create his own language. And he created several in his times. I believe there's two elven languages, and there's a dwarven language. Um, so it comes from that inspiration. And I, of course, before mentioned his, the other works of Beowulf, the, the Arthurian legends. There's actually a through line through a lot of Celtic and Northern European stories of Mirkwood. So Mirkwood's actually in Arthurian legends. It's also a connection to real, like there's an actual Mirkwood in um, in the world, in England. So there's, and that's also in Middle Earth. And it's kind of a through line to kind of give reference to that this Middle Earth is actually on Earth eventually. Like it, it was the Earth at some point. And um, let's see. Even further back, so he's inspired by all these classic fairy tales, and more specifically to his writing, um, he would actually got ideas from his translations. Mm. So one of them, there's a bunch of real real life locations that inspired him, but one of the bigger ones was he was called in to do a translation of a of Latin for this um, for this site called uh, Dwarves Hill in, and I'm going to butcher the name, sorry English people um, Gloucestershire Lin, uh, Lin, Lindy Park, Gloucestershire and he in he translated the Latin inscription on a cursed ring and actually traced back to an Irish hero, uh, Nuida of the Silverhand. Okay. And this is what I was mentioned before. Um, that is actually Silverhand translates into Elvish as Calabrimbor, which is the forger of the uh, three rings for the elves. Okay. Like very so, much a direct, um, yeah. direct inspiration. And the cursed ring is. So that cursed ring that's on, that was found in uh, Dwarf's, Dwarf's Hill is the inspiration of the One Ring, 
to rule them all, which currently is um, I believe it is the Ring of Sil- Silvanus. Yeah, Ring of Silvanus, which was discovered in 1785, and is currently in National Trust in Baskin Stroke in Hampshire. Huh. So you can go and see this. You can go see the inspiration to the ring. Uh, the ring. Wow. wow. But uh, it is part of a National Trust collection, so I'm not exactly sure. It's part of an estate, so not sure if it's like open to the public all the time. So okay, you have to check it out. But I mean, hey, you did a phenomenal job covering all that, and I just have two names to add, right? And yeah. I, I know nothing about them. I did. This is the <laughs> part where I just dropped the ball. <laughs> there, these are two writers that he mm-hmm. was influenced by that influenced his writing. George MacDonald and William Morris. Look them up if you feel free. <laughs> but those are two <laughs> fantasy writers in the 1800s who yeah. he read and then led to his writing, helping him write his writing style. Well, one of the uh, big part of his writing style. Which I is thought you were going to come in and be like, oh, George MacDonald is, and then just really yeah. impressed me. No. You know nothing about them either? I know. I, I've heard of them, and I don't know much about them. Fair. I, I got to be honest. My, my research, like, I went down a rabbit hole, and, like, I see all the other stuff as I'm passing by, and I'm like, I'm going to keep going down this rabbit hole. <laughs> there was so much I passed. This is single-handedly the hardest video, I think, that we've oh, yeah, ever done so far. Like, I, I just know I'm not going to be able to cover everything. Like, yeah. I, I know a, a few other, like, direct uh, inspirations to characters and moments in lord of the rings and the hobbit Mm -hmm. but i just can't i just can't cover them all (laughs) just that mentioning the inspiration of the one ring took forever yes but um, Uh, i led you off track there you shouldn't ramble that's not our name so oh yeah get back on subject can't do that uh but a big part of his writing style so i was talking about how he starts with the language then the names and then from there the stories and kind of what these characters are and how he actually structures his plot for both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is he creates a map. The huh. map comes first. And that's how he's able to plot things out is because he can see where oh. things are. And he, because Tolkien's very good at a, a sense of time and scale yeah. in the story. Because it feels like a journey. Because like months take place from here to here where a week takes place from here to here. Everything makes sense on how long it takes to get from place to place. Yeah. yeah. Because he made, he made the map first. I did not and know that. The mountains and he would create this and he took so much time in the map that he you know, he drew um the Misty Mountains. Like, oh, there has to be a story here. Drew a dragon, like, of course there's a dragon in the mountain. There's a story there. And so Bilbo Gooding from there to there, what's in the forest that mm. has to go through? And so it helped him keep a actual coherent plot line by drawing the map first that is and then drawing cool. the little the path of their journey story came second to that oh he didn't even have character it was just here's a map the of story this cool world. the story was like the last the the last thing he did was write the plot and story <laughs> that's the last thing he did got it but he had the world in his head a bit because yeah. of his childhood and whatnot mm-hmm. okay sweet um and yeah. hell I mean, there's just so many little things of he was inspired by um, one of his son's puppets, who his uh, second son, um, Michael. His uh, he had a puppet, which was then, uh, which is what uh, Tom Bombadil was based on. Ah, neat. That there was a 
uh, there's a story that's released in Tales from the Perilous Realm mm. that was his um, his eldest son lost a dog and was scared about where it came from. And so he wrote a story about a dog going into this kind of fantasy story about this dog that left home and uh, this magical journey for this dog. So okay. tons of stuff are inspired by his kids. So, God, there's so much. <laughs> we cover about 5% of it. Oh, yeah, no, so it's so that, much. I think that's about we could do with our ability on where he's ins- who yeah. he's inspired by where. Honestly, and- I really hope that with the stuff that we're talking about that uh, you guys uh, watching will do your own research and kind of discover more and, you know, relate to back us into the Back to us in the comments. Please share with us because mm-hmm. the, I'm sure there's a ton of stuff we missed. And we're trying. Yeah. We're doing our best. We're doing our best. And to I'll, cover I'll slowly be reading most most of these books up here. So yeah, I'll find out more myself. So, Hobbit happened. We have how he was influenced to write these certain ways. Now we have, while he was a teacher, a very important part of his entire writing journey in his life were the Inklings. The Inklings was a group that Tolkien created and founded at Oxford, where him and a bunch of writer buddies that totaled 19 members at one point, and the f- most famous members were J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who yeah. was another teacher at Oxford, and this is their legendary relationship and friendship and broship. This is where it came from, was at Oxford, and the Inklings was started as a, again, looking at, what was it, more poetry and kind yeah. of looking at old Norse stuff, and it started like that, and turned more into a what we modernly say a writer's group or they gave each other's works and read stuff they, they so you know met at a classic you know british pub and oh, yeah. discussing like, just the aesthetics are perfect yeah, very perfect so yeah the, the other members aren't more known but it's mainly c.s lewis and J.R. tolkien who who led to, uh, c.s lewis obviously creating narnia and mm-hmm. whatnot well also in addition his son uh, also became a member. Yes. And that was because... Christopher of, Tolkien, correct? Yes, Christopher Tolkien, his son, became a member because of all the work that Christopher did as an actual editor for the Lord of the Rings. Uh, it, there came a certain point where he actually stopped doing uh, his own uh, his own uh, work at university and was like, yeah, I'm just going to go full-time on uh, you know, helping my father actually craft the lord of the rings basically what every father dreams of, of having a, yeah no <laughs> the, a, child the right by son. a loyal <laughs> just driven son yeah that's, exactly that's awesome. uh, so yeah with c.s lewis his relationship with c.s lewis was very close mm-hmm. and tolkien actually a little fun fact i found tolkien loved costumes once he and c.s lewis went to a party dressed as polar bears in sheepskin and white face no it wasn't a costume party he did this for fun <laughs> just showed up like that so uh yeah that's that's tolkien that's c.s lewis they had oh, they, they right. had a friendship <laughs> and something more serious about their friendship is lewis c.s lewis actually rejected christianity in his early teens and uh, and uh, uh, i think into his adult years but yeah. he was an atheist during this time th- yeah throughout his 20s and c.s lewis turned to theism with there was influences throughout this time, but one big part of his transformation in from becoming an atheist into becoming a Christian was through J.R.R. Tolkien, who, as we know, was a devout Roman Catholic. Now, Tolkien is a Catholic and surely wanted 
C.S. Lewis to also become Catholic. There's actually writings of him talking about his uh, one of his biggest regrets is yeah. that he that he wasn't able to get C.S. Lewis to become fully Catholic. He, he only converted got a, him into the wrong religion. <laughs> he only converted him to Christianity, which wasn't all the way. No, you're close. You're almost there. <laughs> the do you know the way that this happened? The big conversation they had. I believe it was a discussion on. Um, I think it was twofold. One, it was Pascal's Wager and also... I didn't read that. Uh, Pascal's Wager and also the the lack of moral... No. Um, it wasn't no, a moral the, discussion? It, no, I, I didn't find that through my research. The, hmm. the main thing I found was this one conversation that they had where they went on Addison's walk. It's a place in England somewhere, probably. <laughs> I didn't look into I, that. I was, I was remembering uh, when I read Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis. Got it, it. That he had discussions with Tolkien about that same thing. Okay. Yeah, very well could have. That, that's not what I got on my end. So okay. that could be in addition to this. Could be. This is the This is the big anecdote that uh, Tolkien, or sorry, that C.S. Lewis says, mm-hmm. is they were walking through and they're having these conversations and Tolkien essentially said to C.S. Lewis, you respect all of these mythologies, that these fake mythologies like Greek and Norse and so forth, and you have, hold them to such admiration. But when you look at uh, when you look at Christianity, you scorn at them as an atheist. And he said, "Why is that?" And he made C.S. Lewis think about that. And I'm really, really making this rudimentary. There's a lot more to this, but essentially said to him, "Why, you know, all the, all these mythologies are mythologies except Christianity." Look at this as, uh, don't look at that as something that's, uh, look at it as something more than what you're giving it. And that little thing sparked something in him. And then he said, yeah, I was being biased against this for some reason. And then thought more about it and it led to, there was more after that, I'm sure. But that was the spark that led that down the road. And I'm sure you're right about uh, it in Mere Christianity. He talked about C.S. Lewis about several things. I believe he mentioned it there that he talked with Tolkien Tolkien about it, but... Okay. I very well could be wrong. So yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm there's never just one reason why someone changes their life view that quickly. Yeah. So there, there's a lot behind it. I'm sure, I'm sure you're right about that. So, I mean, and C.S. Lewis helped Tolkien big time in the Inklings because <laughs> this, this I find great because th- this is such a Tolkien thing to do. So Tolkien was reading various Middle Earth genealogies and appendices and he was adding them and having fun with it. And uh, C.S. Lewis essentially said, you know, he was asking him about, like, why are you doing all this? And Tolkien was like, oh, I'm perfectly content focusing on that sort of thing. You know, I'm, I'm just doing my, having fun, world building. And Lewis urged him, like, you got to make this a novel. What are you doing? You have all this. Ma- <laughs> write a novel. Now. He didn't say it like that. But now. Write it. Okay. <laughs> and Tolkien, uh, Tolkien once confided in a mutual friend of theirs. This mutual friend's name is Walter Hooper. But... <laughs> but Tolkien said to him, you know Jack, Jack, by the way, is C.S. Lewis's name, yeah. so, you know Jack, he had to have a story, and that story, The Lord of the Rings, was written to keep him quiet. <laughs> so Tol- <laughs> Tolkien said he wrote Lord of the Rings to shut his pre-atheist, now blasphemous, not Catholic, Christian <laughs> C.S. Lewis to shut him up and say, fine, here's the story. And so a Lord of the Rings was published in 54, then 55 and 56, I think, or 54 no, 50, and 55. Yeah, right. just the two years. And then it took him over a decade to write, and then he retired from Oxford in 1959. Man. 
So I, I think we covered a lot there. I think I think that made sense to people. Maybe yeah. we did that chronologically. <laughs> because now we have... Uh, do you want to add anything there before I move on? Okay, that's that's... Oh, God. That's a lot of notes. So much notes. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to this. This is something I've been... <laughs> I wanted to talk about this with you. This was the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy because as we were going over subjects and notes to talk about in the podcast, yeah. this was a part I don't think you looked into. Mm-hmm. How Lord of the Rings became popular. He published a book. Do you know anything about it? Uh, the only thing I know is he published The Hobbit. Yep. And yeah. his publisher was like, you got to write another book. Yeah. This was great. Yeah. Everyone loved it. And so I was like, all right, bet. And he wrote a book. He's like, hey, I got a book. He's like, oh, that's <laughs> great. Boom. It's like, yeah, that's not going to fit in one book. You got to split that up into three. And then read it. It was like, this is so different. <laughs> this isn't like The Hobbit at all. <laughs> Where, Where's the, where's the like, yeah, I don't know. The wholesome children's <laughs> yeah. story. Why is this like serious? <laughs> Pretty much, actually, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, just like, what's this? I told you to write a sequel to The Hobbit. You give me this? Like, Tome? What is this? He probably did it as a joke, too. You know, let me make this ultra serious. Yeah. No, I mean, it's more in line with all of his stories that, no, of he, course, of course. Uh, that he came up with before The Hobbit as well. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's fairly accurate. And then, so he, he wrote The Lord of the Rings, gave this to his publisher, split it up into three. But it, it was published in nineteen, as we just said, nineteen fifty four and fit nineteen fifty five. Did not become ultra popular until the mid, mainly the nineteen sixties, years after it was actually released. Mm-hmm. And here's the reason why. And this is a fascinating discussion we got to have. So a pirated Ace paperback edition in nineteen sixty five propelled the novels to a cult status, and this went everywhere in the US. It was spread like wildfire. That I did hear. You did, yes. Yes. Which yeah. says a lot about pirating these movies are pirated, shows are pirated. I think a lot of the credit for for example, of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. of how huge it is, the amount of sites that you could watch Game of Thrones for free were so large and it kind of spread like people started watching it and then by the time a new season would come out, bought HBO so they could watch right away. Mm-hmm. Kind of like with this the pirated copy goes everywhere, and then all of a sudden, now the actual book sales just yeah just explode. But yeah, so this this uh, this pirated Ace paperback edition was propelled to occult status, and what this means is seventy three year old Tolkien at the time was in a weird position where he was a retired Oxford professor and a hero. You know, he's a retired Oxford professor, religious kind of this. You know, old guy in the 1960s, which was the decade of essentially counterculture. Mm -hmm. And this counterculture was starting to emerge. And he was, says that by his death in 1973, Tolkien remained very flattered and also very puzzled. (laughs) Just (laughs) very confused. Because you have to remember, this is the 1960s, the time of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, protests against the Vietnam War. And Tolkien is this deeply religious Oxford professor, World War I veteran. It just doesn't make sense. Like, the leader of the counterculture is this guy. Yeah. It's, and it makes sense, though. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it. So in the U.S., this counterculture is emerging. And I find this funny because in today's memes and whatnot, we have, like, Harambe for president and whatnot. You know what they were writing in graffiti back then was hmm. Gandalf for president. You could see that in graffiti. And Frodo <laughs> lives. Because at the end, the Undying Lands and whatnot. Yeah. So they were writing Frodo lives in graffiti. Gandalf for president in, in graffiti. And why? 
why was this such a huge thing? One big thing was that the little people uh, used hallucinogenic drugs, the herb called pipe weed. So this was a big thing uh-huh. where it was, oh man, we got the pipe. So it was a big thing in the counterculture. You also have that Middle Earth was just a great escape from the times. Like, there's Vietnam's going on. Mm-hmm. All the, it's and well, it's it also it idealizes the uh, kind of classic, um, the classic uh, British countryside yep. and the more familiar living and it really does look down upon industrialization oh, era. Oh, that's a huge... You got, that's took a it out of big, my mouth. That's a big connection to the 60s. You know, yeah. That, that kind of fight against the industrialization and the move toward a uh, more natural living and living with nature and s- with family kind of stuff. It was 1970 when Earth Day was... Think the so. first Earth Day, because that was huge. Because Tolkien had this anti-materialistic worldview, exactly that. Just mm-hmm. stone, wood, iron tree, grass, bread, and wine. Just these very simplistic, anti-materialistic things, anti-industrial, so it was very green and environmental friendly. And another big thing, it was appealing during the, uh, this anti-war feminist and civil rights movement, because he had these little people, the hobbits, and their wizard ally leading this revolution. And likewise, Lady Eowyn, did I say that correctly? Eowyn, Eowyn yep. of Rohan. She also have Galadriel, uh, yeah, of and, course. But with what Eowyn, this, this line in here, she answered Aragorn's question about uh, something about there being a patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. And he, Aragorn asks, what do you fear, lady? And she responded, a cage. To stay behind bars until, until use in old age accept them. And all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. Yeah. So there's this there's this very uplifting and counterculture. That the more that the more interesting about. thing about Eowyn, though, yeah. And I don't think people like I don't think feminists at the time really understood that. I think from Tolkien's point of view, writing that Eowyn was a tragic character. That that. Because she is a character seeking death. She has gone through... um, Her home life is so destructive. Um, Her brother dies. She is one that wants to die gloriously in battle. And even Aragorn understands, like, yeah, this ain't good. (laughs) Like, no, like, battle battle is not something of glory. Like, you don't want to seek a glorious death. That's not a good thing to seek. And... She is so empty that that is what she's looking for. So she running toward a glorious death. And then she accomplishes this great feat. She kills the king of the Nazgul. I mean, arguably, like, arguably, like, there was Frodo. And then, hey, like, those are big kills. Like, she accomplished great things. And afterward was still sad. She lost her purpose. She was not gifted her glorious death. And so she's sad. And she only becomes... like She is pulled out of her depression from Boromir's brother, who shows her a new purpose. Instead of uh, just fighting, that the, the fight is over. You don't need to seek glorious death. You can seek glorious life. You can be a mother. You can raise children. Like You can put down the sword. And so she finds a new purpose in life uh, with Boromir's brother. Look at that. Uh, Which, yeah, that's far more, it's far more critical of like, hey, look, yes, um, Eowyn can do these amazing things. You know, she is a great warrior. 
but should she be? Well, that's and that's that's, that's a that's well, that, a far that's more complex in, message. That's why this is such an interesting thing of what propelled Lord of the Rings of Fame because it is there's this mix of traditionalism in Tolkien. Yeah, but you can see how there's the seeds of of counterculture, especially in the sixties. Yeah. So you don't think about it, but it goes like for example, Tolkien rode his bike to uh, to Oxford all the time. Like he was very much like a. Like th- that's also a '60s environmental thing. Yeah, ride your bike. Don't drive. Don't drive well, a gas guzzle car. I don't think you could. You, no, he that's chose expensive. to. He chose to. Yeah. Before. So, and it it became such a part of the counterculture that did you know this? The Beatles attempted to make it into an adaptation, but the the Beatles the, did. The, the Beatles, the be- the the band, really? the Beatles. Yes, where they wanted to make it, and Tolkien reportedly said no, <laughs> just because he didn't want a pop band to be the lead of his. Fair ad- to adapt his stuff and uh yeah the, the bbc reports that paul mccartney would have been frodo john lennon as Gollum, george harrison as gandalf and ringo Starr as sam that would have been oh thank all goodness right. that didn't happen and yeah. do you guess who the director was supposed to be who stanley kubrick <laughs> at the time at the time would have been a great director uh yeah. i mean he's a legendary director but he did at the time spartacus 2001 space odyssey in 69 yeah. so and Led Zeppelin had Middle Earth and songs, just crazy counterculture. And obviously, the books from there propelled to where now there's a sales. Sales are over 600 million copies sold, mm-hmm. hundreds of millions from Lord of the Rings, 100 million from The Hobbit. And here we are today. And now let's get into the very brief discussion here of when J.R.R. Tolkien died. It was 1973, correct? Yeah. And his wife died two years before, and this is where you were speaking earlier on about their gravestones. Do you want to go into that? Oh, it's it just a little small. It, yeah. On he, re, I believe he requested uh, that on their on both their gravestones. Uh, I believe they share a gravestone. Okay. It says Baron and Luthien on it. Yeah, just a small thing of it was the love. It was his kind of idealized version of his love story between him and his wife. Nice. They're just cute. It is honestly one of my favorite uh, stories in the Silmarillion. Definitely a standout. Nice. And, and one more thing I'll say. I'm mm-hmm. going to throw a curveball at everyone mm-hmm. here. Now, I'm not one for conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. okay? But he died in 1973. A commenter on some video I found called Job Butcher. This, this was the commenter's name. He said, so he died in 1973, right? 19973. Mm-hmm. One ring. One nineteen, right? One ring to rule them all. Nine rings to the men doomed to die. Seven <laughs> rings to the dwarf lords in their mountains, and three to the elves, which are not easily corrupted. Nineteen seventy-three. <laughs> Tell me that's a coincidence. I think this guy's spot on. I, I I imagine you know he he just knew that it was his time to die. <laughs> he drank cyanide to just just to make sure it would be a poetic death. Oh, that's yeah. how dedicated he was to Middle Earth. Oh, that's how legacy. dedicated he is to poetry. Yeah, see, <laughs> see that? Okay, cool. Now let's get into post post mortem uh, legacy. His legacy and his influence is something that we can't even scratch the surface of. Oh, it, it, it's there are more published works from Tolkien after his death than before. Right. No, Way I don't. More. I don't just mean that. I mean Way the pe- the more. people he influenced. His legacy on fantasy. Oh God. It, yeah. It's va- I mean, fantasy changed forever afterward. That's almost just kind of obvious. Yeah. His, his um, elves did not exist. Elves existed before Tolkien, but his description of them definitely cemented what people think of as elves. Same thing with dwarves. 
and um oh god hobbits just the idealized uh kind of uh the little guy the little farmer out there i mean hobbits are a staple mostly with tolkien but still their counterparts so wheel of time you would be the um oh god hurts hurts my head uh emmons field uh, basically the hobbits of that story. Okay. Um, you'd have, oh geez, I'm trying to think of more. I, There's I a couple others. I mean, clearly, Star Wars. Star Wars has so many similarities with Gandalf, the old wide wizard, and Obi Wan, the old mm-hmm. wise, uh, the Jedi master. And you have the innocent protagonist Frodo going on this journey. You have the innocent protagonist C three PO and R two D two going on this journey. Well, Luke. Well, the where we yes, that's the protagonist. But the uh, the first scenes that we see are uh, that they they introduce it. But in many ways, you can almost see. You know, I would love to see that comparison yeah. of Luke is Aragon. He's the hero, right, the, right. the the big protagonist. Yep. And um, C three PO well, and R two D two are Sam and Frodo, yeah. and like the secret is like you know actually a lot of like the unsung hero of Star Wars is R two D two. Yeah. Just like how... Well, Frodo you know, Frodo's Frodo. carrying the wing to Mordor. R2-D2 is carrying the disc. Yeah. The data tapes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that they're the Dark Lord, Sauron, Darth Vader. I mean, you could go on with the comparisons. And, but the big one I wanted to make is George R. R. Martin. Yeah. And George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones might not have happened, I, I think it's fair to say, without Lord of the Rings. And one big Most of fantasy influence. would not have happened without Correct. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and George R. R. Martin read the Lord of the Rings when he was 13. Mm-hmm. So when he was 13 years old, he he read this, and he was very confused at first of, like, wait, there's, like, where's the action in all this? And what is going on? What am I reading? I'm reading about a Shire, and he was taken aback. And suddenly when he got to the Cave of Mor- Cave of Mor- Mines of Moria, he was like, yeah, this is the best book I've ever read, essentially when he, he got into that. One big inspiration for him was, and I'll quote George R. R. Martin here. Mm-hmm. He said, this is, uh, so he says, George R. R. Martin says this, and then Gandalf dies. I can't explain the impact that had on me at 13. You can't kill Gandalf. I mean, Conan didn't die in the Conan books, you know. Tolkien just broke that rule, and I'll love him forever for it. (laughs) The minute you kill Gandalf, the suspense of everything that follows is a thousand times greater because now anybody could die. Of course, that had a profound impact on my own willingness to kill characters off at the drop of a hat. So Gandalf dying in that first book, and I will say this, he then later said, uh, George R. R. Martin said this, what power that had, how that grabbed me. And then he comes back as Gandalf the White, and if anything, he's uh, sort of improved. I never liked Gandalf the White as much as Gandalf the Grey, and I never liked him coming back. I think it would have been a stronger story if Tolkien had left him dead. That makes a lot of sense coming from George R. R. Martin. Absolutely. I, I like Gandalf coming back. I mean, a big part of Middle-earth is kind of the catholic and more christian thing of resurrection that is a mm. that is a constant theme in uh in uh middle but he, Earth, he so. doesn't mean to he doesn't parallel his work to any metaphors or analogies oh no but famous clearly people. he likes something mm-hmm. he likes a certain type of story yeah and he wrote it yeah. and he wrote the story he likes yeah. so so now now something big to get into is or are the adaptations sure this one's more so for what the rights are so the mm. rights are so confusing and, and, and like who owns what 
it's always so confusing to me. And I'll try to make this as comprehensible as possible. Mm -hmm. So, Tolkien sold the rights in 1969 to adaptations. And he sold them at the time for 100,000 pounds. Today, that's roughly a couple million US dollars with inflation and whatnot adjusted. So practically nothing for the work that he had. And it's said that he sold the rights at the time because he had ta taxes due or there was a pittance or something. Yeah. And obviously the, uh, man, he kept certain things like rights to publish works and still rights to that. And also very notably rights to TV adaptations with eight episodes or more was still with the Tolkien ah. estates. And on top of that, they get royalties. There's deals with that. So he didn't sell, it's not like he didn't, keep royalties and whatnot. So the Tolkien estate still had rights to publishing and this and that. But the company called United Artists purchased the rights in 19, it purchased the rights immediately and were about to make something with it, didn't. So this new company called Saul Zant's company, which I'm not going to refer to them to that because today they're referred to as Middle Earth Enterprises. I'll call them that for the rest of this. Mm -hmm. But Middle Earth Enterprises, they bought the rights from United Artists and this is the company that they license out a lot of stuff. So they don't make it themselves. And this is the company that made films such as One Flew's Over the Cuckoo's, Cuckoo's Nest, Cuckoo's Nest, and Amadeus. So they they license it out. Like they've licensed it out to Miramax and uh, sorry, who, uh, Warner Bros. Mm -hmm. It was New Line Cinema at the time. That's how the movies were made, essentially. There's so much I could go into here and how the rights work and what's divvied up. But essentially, uh, films the deal that Warner Bros. has today is... We don't know what the specifics are, but they have to make or work on producing content if they're to keep the licensing rights that they bought from them. Yeah. So that's why they have a movie they announced in 2024 coming out. Something about uh, so something, something. It's a long title. It's, they, they don't have much on it yet. So mm. they're still working on stuff. And the company that, that's been licensing all this just recently, 2022, in August, sold it to another company, a Swedish company called Embracer Group. So it's all over the place. It's confusing. Tolkien Estate, if it's eight episodes or more, you have to go to them and they get royalties and they have the publishing rights with the books and them with Harper Collins. Um, yeah. And then if you want to license something, Warner Bros. has the licensing they bought from this company. and this. So it's a there's a lot that goes into it. It's a mess. It's a mess. Uh, but Tolkien, when he was alive, sold the rights to this company. Also, there's a, a Russian version of i believe the fellowship of the ring that was not given any rights yeah. to the like they just made it they didn't give tolkien any money yeah they just said eh, screw it we're gonna make it they, why not they, they didn't have to because it's a different country they're just like ah forget you yeah just, we don't follow your laws yeah they just did it wow. and um it was most it recently was uh, kind of uncovered Hmm. Uh, past few years. Wow. It, it was pretty recently that people were like, oh, wait, this was a thing. But anyway, that's okay. something. That's another little adaptation that, apparently exists. Crazy. Apparently well, it sucks. The but. actual adaptations, which let's not, people know the adaptations, but something yeah. to, that people might not know. Is, so you have Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies, obviously. Mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings changed fantasy over $3 billion, all the sorts. And... One thing I want to mention, and I don't want to get too too much into these movies, but The Hobbit, one must-know fact about The Hobbit, hmm. is after this very successful Lord of the Rings trilogy, and Jackson, and Jackson actually initially wanted to do a Hobbit, uh, do a Hobbit, what do you call it, an adaptation, but adapt to Lord of the Rings, but The Hobbit, as it came out, Ian McKellen, 
uh, Gandalf cried on set of The Hobbit. He was so overwhelmed with isolation because in Lord of the Rings, you know how interactive it was and how the shots were. They made Gandalf and Frodo different by using camera angles, yeah. different sizes. In, in The Hobbit, Ian McKellen was looking at a green screen with pictures of people that would light up to when he was talking to them. And it was so depressing and he was so upset with how this is his acting career now. He said, this is not why I signed up to become an actor and was brought to tears. And unfortunately, his microphone was on, so the studio heard this as he was saying this. So if that tells you anything about his experience on the Hobbit set versus Lord of the Rings, I guess that could tell you why one of the movies did phenomenal and one of the movie trilogies did not. Okay, now I want to ask you this. Uh, well, I promise we're wrapping up, everybody. We got so there's so much about J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, we haven't even really gotten into oh, uh, Christopher that, Tolkien. Let's do that. That was my big Christopher Tolkien. Okay, yeah. Christopher Tolkien is the son of J.R.R. Tolkien, and he made his legacy. Uh, you put it in your own words because it's it's something so admirable. Christopher Tolkien at the amount of work that he did on his father's work, it, it is fair to say that. The story of Middle Earth is at least partially Christopher's. Um, it's also his work as well. The amount of love and care he went into editing and making sure that uh, consistency was going through. He he went through the note, uh, all of the notes that uh, his father left behind, and very unorganized, and so many different versions of stories and he has to connect them together and the meticulous care they did to making sure that his father's vision came came about and then not just the stories but the history behind it so taking the notes of how the landscapes are what are the peoples like how are they described what are they what are their personal histories that he wrote a 12 volume uh history of middle earth right there very expensive books by the way would you say very most expensive. of these are made because of Christopher Tolkien. No, 100%. Okay. And maybe some of them would have been released without him, but they would have been of severe lesser quality. And, I mean, he was put onto the... He was actually inducted into the Inklings because of his the work that he did for his father. And, um, he, I mean, he started working on The Hobbit when he was still a kid, helping his father off mm. with it. The Silmarillion being his magnum opus, the greatest thing that he did for his father because his father wanted the Silmarillion. He worked on it till uh, even up until his deathbed and wasn't able to complete it. And his son picked up and did honestly the best he really could and was able to make a coherent story out of and connecting these things that his father wanted. And it, the Silmarillion as we have it is the second best that it possibly could be. The only <clears throat> the only way it could be better is if Tolkien, you know, uh, J.R.R. was able to finish it himself. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, just the amount of work he did it is really inspiring. It's very admirable as a son to continue your father's legacy like that. Mm-hmm. And it's true. You would not have most of these published works as they are without, without Christopher Tolkien continuing this because he ended up dying in his 90s recently in 2020 he died yeah and he was the lead of the Tolkien estate up until 2017 and i want to finish this video off with just this 
Christopher Tolkien on the adaptations, both Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. This is what he said about them and about what, uh, what he thinks of how The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit have been portrayed in film. Christopher Tolkien said, They eviscerated the book by making it an action movie for young people aged 15 to 25, he said about Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And it seems that The Hobbit will be the same kind of film. That was what he said before, before seeing The Hobbit. And that makes sense from someone who worked so hard on their father's legacy and, and has meticulously made several volumes and expanded upon it. And th- that is his world. So his viewpoint makes yeah. sense. No, I, I actually think that now Tolkien was also pretty protective of his own work. Mm. He was particular about his Didn't stuff. Didn't sell it to the Beatles. Didn't sell it to the Beatles. So he is also protective of his work. But I think there is a difference between Tolkien, um, the father and the son, the father who creates these stories. And actually, there was a a quote from his um, when he was talk. He was talking about what he wanted. He was talking to his publisher about what what he wanted the Lord of the Rings to be. J.R.R. Tolkien. One? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, I'll read this quote here. This is a letter to his editor and publisher. Um, I had a mind uh, to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and uh, cosmotic uh, to the level of romantic fairy story, the larger foundation on the lesser in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the vast backcloths, which I simply could dedicate to England, to my country. I would draw some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only in place placed in the scheme and sketched. The cycle should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint, music, and drama. Clearly, he wanted to create something that could also surpass him. Like Other people could maybe, with care, continue and tell stories and come up with their own ideas of little things that happen in this world. That kind of openness to it I imagine maybe he could have seen the Hobbit, the, the Lord of the Rings movies in a different way. Like, hey, it's different. It adds to it. it but it isn't his books. But it's different. Christopher, on the other hand, he wrote a history book. Twelve history books on the accuracy and the specifics of Lord of the Rings. No adaptation is going to live up to his expectations. No of- adaptation right. is. Because that he was concerned with accuracy mm-hmm. i i don't know if tolkien uh, the father was as concerned with accuracy as his own son and although christopher tolkien didn't love the adaptations i think it's fair to say that we can give an official rambler score of a six out of ten at best for tolkien's <laughs> works in total six out of ten at best yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I let's end it with this what has Gerard tolkien's impact on you been what do you think about his overall legacy if you can somehow not answer that question in 20 hours, which we can well take that time. <laughs> I mean, it's the granddaddy of fantasy for a reason. And it made me appreciate, I, I, I read a bunch of other modern fantasy before Lord of the Rings, officially reading the books. And it gave me a great appreciation for it because I understand why a, m- almost everything else pales in comparison. 
And it really opened your eyes to how shallow a lot of other worlds in fantasy books are. And not to their fault. Like, it's just the bar is so high that it's hard to, it's nearly impossible to even compete with that. So, also, it gave me the idea of maybe I could actually write my story a little better if I drew a map first. Maybe that's a way to kind of help me plot it out and uh, get, get myself motivated to write my story. There you go. And we obviously did a token deep dive for a reason. He is someone mm-hmm. that I think it's fair to say for you as well as I deeply admire. And his the, without the Lord of the Rings, I don't even think I would be the fantasy lover that I am today. There's mm-hmm. just no way. It, it created my fascination with fantasy, with books at all. Because without without me seeing those movies as a kid, my yeah. and not only would I not be able to read things, there wouldn't be things to read because he is, like you said, I will end this with this quote, the granddaddy <laughs> of fantasy. All right. Let us know in the comments uh, what you guys thought about the video. Uh, what are your uh, own thoughts on Tolkien himself? Maybe your own research. We'd love to hear it. Hear about it. We weren't able to cover everything about Tolkien's life in this video. We rushed obviously. through our notes and still this long. Oh, yeah. So I'm still missing We didn't uh, want stuff, you guys to have to so. sit here for as long as you had to. So. Let us know if you want anything, um, any other uh, videos on maybe some specific Tolkien's work. Maybe a story, his story on Baron and Luthien, or maybe some of his more epic poems. Um, but, yeah. Like, comment, subscribe, all that stuff. And yes, we'll... Catch you guys next week. Next week, we will be reviewing the first Avatar movie. I think so. I think it comes up. Yeah. The first Avatar. No, Avatar 1. Is that the one that's going to come out next week? The the one after this video, yeah. Okay. Hey, you're the boss. It's fine. (laughs) Don't make it look like this is an abusive relationship. (laughs) You very well know. Okay. All right. right. Bye-bye, y'all. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.